for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is September 22nd, and it's a good day. We got Matt Zalon, the public land guru himself from Michigan, to talk about October hunting. Welcome to the Fall Podcast, everybody. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and today, like I said earlier, is a great day. It's a great day. For one, today my daughter is getting her cast off her leg, so that's huge. Hopefully everything is uh, healing right and we don't have to put it back on, but we have to take x-rays and get all that done. But I'm hoping like hell. It's been a six weeks ordeal and I hope like hell it's it's she's back to 100% and we're good to go. So that's, that's good feeling number one. Good feeling number two is deer season for a lot of people is right here. We're here. It's cold. It's been cold. This last weekend has been chilly. I mean, Saturday morning, my dad and I went out and hung some stands like right at daybreak and did some scouting, and it was there's frost on the ground. So I was super pumped about that. But I, I, I mean, it's just a good time to be living, you know. I'm excited. So hopefully, everybody else out there is excited as well. Today, I have Matt Zoll on. He's from Michigan, from the west side of Michigan. I've had him on twice before. And if you guys have not heard those podcasts, go back and listen to those because this guy is a he's a beast. He is a public land hunter and private. He hunts a lot of private as well, but he's killed some studs in Michigan on public land with a bow. It, the guy just gets on big deer. I mean, last year, I think he passed up like 25 bucks in Michigan with a bow. Um, and he just, he's got it. You know, he just knows what to do. He's just got, got the knack. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but I like talking to Matt. I've got to know him over the last two years. I like talking to him because not a lot of people know about him. I mean, think about 
a lot of my listeners, if probably, you know, unless you're close to Matt, or Matt, you probably have never heard his name or you've heard the podcast. Probably that's probably the only other way you might have heard of him. But like, that's what's cool to me about all these guys around the country that that I've even never even heard of. And I might hear through the grapevine, like this guy, need to get him on the podcast. He is just a killer. That's Matt Zoll. So I'm not going to do a big, long dissertation here for an interview. I want to get to this interview with Matt. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast. Thank you for all the support. And uh, get out there and hunt. It's coming up here soon. Make sure all your equipment is ready, dialed in, everything's scent free. Get out there and enjoy it. And uh, also be ethical. So do that. Get your tags and read your rule book. So, all right, enough rambling. Here we go with Matt Zoll. All right, welcome back to the Fall Podcast, and today we have another return guest, and honestly, a lot of people are probably wondering why I got so many return guests, but, you know, I just like having all the guests on, and I feel like they're so uh, informative, so Matt Zoll is back on the podcast today. I think your third time, right, Matt? Yep, I believe so. I think we did two last year, and then um, so far this one. Yeah, so, yep. So it's always I, a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no problem, man. It's a pleasure having you on, and and, uh, you know, you, I've said it before. I mean, your track record speaks for itself. If, if nobody knows who Matt Zoll is, like go back and listen to those two episodes. It's, you know, to kind of put you in a nutshell, I mean, you do hunt pub- public and private, but you've killed some absolutely slammer bucks on public land in Michigan, uh, with your bow and, you know, the way you do things like you and I were talking, you know, before earlier today on the phone, how, you know, you're getting more into the beast style, but I think you were telling me like the more and more you like get into it, the more and more you realize like you were doing that before you even knew it was like had a name and and was a thing kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I just didn't know that that was actually like a system that somebody had all mapped out. And then I stumbled across, uh, um, when I got big into like listening to podcasts and, you know, more public land stuff, I stumbled across, um, you know, Dan Infault. And, you know, if you just Google search him, he's like the godfather of, you know, killing big giant public land deer and going where their bedrooms are and knocking on their doors and throwing an arrow at them. So it's, it's that one side I was like, Oh, and then I kind of started to connect the dots and just learned a ton ever since I knew that there was that actual name for the system. Yep, definitely. And, and that speaks for itself because the bucks that you've been killing is just I mean, a lot of people would, would love to have one of those bucks, you know, in a lifetime and you've been doing it multiple times. So, but, but you do have a piece of ground that you live on that you also hunt. So we talk about that in one of the earlier podcasts and then, you know, you just, you just acquired another piece of ground and then you have a lease. Is that correct? And actually, yeah, all that is, I did back out of the lease this year. Okay. Um, for a couple reasons one is i would have had a hard time convincing my wife that i needed to keep a deer lease after buying um 30 <laughs> acres understandable um <laughs> not to say that i wouldn't go back into that um, avenue in the future but that was one of the pieces but the other piece and this was something that i really struggled with last year last year was probably one of my harder years for putting a mature deer in front of me to try and kill and I found it because I became so dependent on thinking that I had to hunt the lease whenever the conditions were right, that I totally backdoored all my public land rut spots and 
I, on a whim last year, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go to, you know, my, I call it the honey hole. And, uh, I'm just going to go out there and do a quick scout. It was kind of rainy in the afternoon and I hit a fresh rub line on three to four or five inch in diameter trees and all these tag allers on the edge of the marsh that I normally hunt. And I went, took my climber out there, had an encounter with a small buck that night, um, going out of the marsh and going up and feed in the oaks. And, uh, that morning, the next morning, I should say, I left my climber out there that night, um, had an encounter with a, a good shooter 10 and I had him at 25 yards. He just needed to clear about the last five yards of cattails. And he had bumped a doe that was bedded right inside those cattails that I wasn't even aware she was there. And, uh, I couldn't get a shot at him. I tried to grunt him back in, snort wheeze him, but he was hot on her tail and that was that. But that kind of was another eye opener. It's like, you already are pretty good at doing this. And how many opportunities did I maybe lose out last year on not just that particular piece of public, but the other pieces of public that um, I've been able to figure out pretty decently too. So, Yeah. And how many years do you think it took you to figure out that piece of public? And, you know, you and I have talked about the honey hole, quote unquote, the honey hole, you call it like quite a bit, but like how many years did it take to actually you know, hone in on that. And, and you've had multiple, you know, successful hunts in there and not only successful hunts, but good encounters as well. So like, it's a, it's a, you know, an ongoing thing that like you're, you're doing this on a regular basis. So how long did it take you to, to get to that point? I would say we'll be in our house this, this Halloween will be, um, six year or no, seven years in our house this year. So I would say it probably took me three years to figure out it was it was the first year into our house that i just happened to be out there um upland bird hunting with my dogs and i realized that i never want to upland bird hunt this area again because it's way too solid of a of a whitetail spot and then it was just that first year i had um an encounter with the third biggest buck that i've taken off of public and i ended up killing him at 12 yards and then the next year was a back-to-back killed him a bigger one yet my biggest one yet to date out of the same tree but every year that i've hunted it out there so this like i said going on seven years now this will be i've had encounters with at least one three and a half year old or older um and killed two so i guess i'm two for seven with encounters every year so i'll take those odds yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> anybody would on public <laughs> land. Hell, I'd take that on private. <laughs> I know, ex- ex- exactly. And it, it really is kind of one of those things, too, where you got to make the most of it. Obviously, private, or, you know, prior to rifle season, as, as you pretty much do everywhere, because you never know what's going to happen. It is state land. But um, primarily, my, my hunting usually tapers off there that three, four days before rifle season starts. But most all the deer that I've had encounters with, or killed have come within that first week of November, if not sooner. All the ones I've killed have been early season deer, which is, I think, to my advantage. Yep, and that's that's kind of what I wanted to get into today is talking about October hunting. That's kind of a theme I got going right now with a couple guests that we've had on, like Clint Casper last week. You know, we talked about hunting October, and then I got a couple guests lined up for the, you know, the next couple weeks that I want to talk, like, get into the the October hunting, and now. You know, there's a lot of things going around, you know, in the present right now of people talking about how, 
you know, it's either they love October and they hate November or they hate October and love November or, you know, vice versa, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. You know, they don't like to hunt mornings in October and I get it. It's totally like, I feel like it's very situational dependent and, um, you know, it's all personal preference as well. And I can only go off the experiences I've had. And I think you can only go off the experiences you've had. So that's why I want to talk to like a variety of people to, to kind of pick their brain about, you know, when their success is coming. Now, when I look back at like what, what I've done, uh, and that this podcast is not about me, but I'm just kind of like kicking it off this way of like the good bucks that I've killed, you know, when did I get on them or, you know, encounters that I've had with good bucks that I could have killed or may have missed. I mean, I've missed my fair share of bucks in the past, but you know, I've, I've killed some good bucks early October. I've killed some good bucks in mid October in that lull period, you know, on the 18th in particular, October 18th has just been a good time for me. Um, <laughs> I killed one of my very first big public land shooter with a boat was on October 18th. Yeah. And, and I'm going to guess, I don't know that story but I'm going to guess you were probably pretty tight to betting or getting it, close to security cover. I didn't realize how tight he was. It was, <laughs> I, I literally sat down five o'clock and five forty-five. he was dead and he got up from his bed, maybe 60 yards from where my climber was. Wow. It was unbelievable. I was like, Holy crap. What the heck? Just, I totally in shock. Yep. You know, and when when I killed mine, mine was back in 2009, and I had moved a stand into this particular piece of this area where it was where it was a hard edge where cedars met hardwoods, and it was a hardwood oak ridge. Okay, so I was sitting probably 40 yards off of the edge where the cedars meet the the oaks, and I was in the oaks. I was on the first ridge, so my whole train of thought was. I thought the deer were going to filter out of that edge or cruise the edge and they were going to hit. I was going to, my ridge was going to be the first ridge they had to come to, to get to the primary food source. So that was my whole train of thought. I'm not going to right. lie to you. Like I didn't think like, Oh, this deer's bedding in here. I, I, I wasn't that far along as a hunter at that point, but it was just, I think it just happened to be where I think I kind of got lucky and it was just a thick ass bedding area. And my brother-in-law was filming me that day. We got in early, I mean real early, and he ended up walking by. I can't remember what time it was, but only deer, only deer we saw came by at like 13 yards, stopped him, double lunged, watch him, watch him fall, and I'm like, oh, my God, I just did something. You know, it was pretty crazy. But I think it's like, you know, like you talked about, I, I know that that first one that I did, I didn't calculate that out to know that that particular deer was bedded within even a hundred yards i would guess that there was deer bedded close to where i was but i think it's it's almost as important to have that lucky almost kind of screw up happen because it makes you want to know well why was that successful and then i think like at least for me and my personal experience that type of an encounter and its success whether i would have killed them or not would have made me dive into deeper like you know thoughts and podcasts and videos and try and figure out well what did I do here and what does this mimic and you know, why was it, why was it like that? Cause I mean, if you think about a big old mature buck getting up out of his bed at like five forty on October 18th is like, what the heck? Like, yeah, they probably do it, but you gotta be right on top of their nose. Yeah, you definitely. Know? You gotta be right on top of them. And I think this is what this buck did. 
and at the at the most, I think he was probably a three year old. Um, he was either two or three. Don't really, you know, really wasn't big into aging at that point. But looking back at it now, he was he was either a two or a three year old. Um, but it, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about how uh, nocturnal bucks and nocturnal deer and um this guy was talking about how he doesn't believe deer are nocturnal like by trait you know or by you know that's that's not something that a deer is and i kind of i kind of agree with them you know maybe the deer aren't moving where you're at right now in the daylight but they're moving somewhere in the daylight like they are you know and his 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 argument i guess or his description was you know there's a lot of times when he's hunting that He'll watch deer just meander through, and they'll bed down, and they don't bed down very long, and they get back up, and then they keep moving. You know, it's it's very twenty minutes, you know, thirty minutes, and they're and then they're moving again, or if if not that long. And uh, I had to agree with them because I I've kind of had the sim the similar uh, experiences as well. So it's like a lot of the October lull or the nocturnal bucks is like. I don't know. They're moving somewhere. They might not be moving on your farm in daylight, but you got to figure out where that is. Right. And I, I would, I would agree with, you know, quite a bit of what you just said there. It's like, they have to be moving somewhere. They're not, you know, at least to the best of my knowledge, they're not like humans where we would go and try and get eight to 10 hours of sleep, you know, in a dead section where they're just going to bed up and lay down and just zonk off. Like that's just not in their nature because they're, you know, they got to be on alert, you know, and all this other stuff going on. They got a lot of predators out there. So <clears throat> they're moving somewhere. They just might not be moving where you're hunting them. Right. For sure. So I, I, I want to transition a little bit and get into this October stuff. So I guess, first of all, I want to kick off, like how, how are you going to, uh, approach October this year? Like what's going to be your approach? Um, cause I know you've got, I know you've checked cameras. I know you run cameras. I know you've got possibly some good intel on those cameras. And <laughs> yes, uh, so what, what's going to be your approach to start off this October? So not having the lease, that kind of takes away, you know, what I would say would be more of a, a guaranteed deer producer as far as like seeing deer. So um, I invested in, I think I dove into the public aspect of things even more than I have probably in the entire time that I've actually done public land pretty serious. And I actually started running um, a bunch of those Tasco game cameras, you know, those ones from Walmart that yep. are $28. <laughs> Let me tell you what, I don't care if one gets stolen on state land and hang them up <laughs> yep. in the air, but I'm running quite a few and I got about five chunks of state land that range as small as 40 acres all the way up to a couple that are close to 800 or a thousand acres. And, um, so I got cameras hung in those particular areas that I scouted in the summer for bedding and for just previous history of rub lines and, um, encounters I've had stuff I found maybe when I was tracking a deer and those types of things. So I've been checking those cameras about once every three to four weeks and doing card pulls. And I do have, I would say a, a solid three, but probably as of three weeks ago, four shooters. Um, I got to go check um, cameras tomorrow, probably for the last time before season starts. Um, all those shooters are on public land. Don't have a shooter yet that has shown up at my house. I got a 
two or three good two and a halfs, but um, primarily my focus for the that first weekend beginning part of the season is if I have a, uh, a consistent daytime sighting from any one of those shooters, that's going to be my, my primary focus. And if I don't, um, what I'll probably do is try and notch an early doe tag and just get one out of the way and put one in the freezer so that I can, you know, devote my time a little bit more to, to trying to figure out where that buck's going to be and when he's going to be there. Okay. So knowing that, I, I got a scenario for you. First scenario here, I got a couple, but we're going to start with this one. So let's say you don't hunt private at all. Let's just mm-hmm. say you're a public land guy and you've got a couple of these shooters to go after. Now, what is going to be your approach getting in there and getting after them early? So it, it's kind of going to depend on what the next card, card poll says. Uh, the the pictures I have had of the shooters, I've had a mixture of daytime and nighttime photos consistently since the end of July. Um, so it's not like they've been all nocturnal or, you know, all daytime or anything like that. They've been kind of hit or miss, and I know that, you know, when middle of September hits, you get a big change, the velvet starts getting rubbed off, and, and bucks start really ranging out to figure out where they're going to be. Um, so no point in getting too calculated um, kind of until this next little bit. But there's there's one spot in particular, and it's actually on the smallest piece of state land that I'm the most excited about. I think it gets overlooked because it's surrounded by a bunch of private, and it's not really advertised that there's an easy access to it. And it's um it borders right up to to ag um it's not very far from planted soybeans right now it's, it's got a couple of winter wheat or winter rice yields that are close nearby um but this particular area is a big drainage that runs from um a big finger between two ag fields bordering um a lot of private i would say white pine and spruce and all that type of stuff where i'm assuming is going to be a, a lot of that primary bedding for those deer but where where i've been primarily scouting or where i think i'm going to hunt is i got a couple spots one is right in the bottom of like a hemlock swamp that goes up pretty steep in elevation up to this big oak ridge and oak flat up top and it has been hammering with acorns i was out there three weeks ago and they were already starting to drop and the ground was just tore up and i think i had almost 1200 photos in three weeks out there Wow! from deer. So, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, just the amount of deer that were using that area. And, um, I think I, I think, you know, I saw three shooters on that particular pull from that one stand location. Um, and then a countless number of does and fawns and small bucks as well too. So it's, I feel like that 40 in, in particular, that little lowland hub and that pinch point, between that steep ridge and that swamp is probably where my opening weekend sit will find myself as long as the intel is there. Okay. So you're definitely going to go more off of camera intel for that. I would say if, yeah, for that particular situation. Um, and what I'll probably do if, if that doesn't show me what I want is I'll go notoriously to you know, kind of my old standard of if I know where there's a really solid chunk of, of bedding or I'm suspecting bedding, I usually hunt a little bit more conservatively 
and then get a little bit more aggressively as the weeks, as the season moves on, and as I'm sitting for my stands as as observation. Okay. Um, unless I have like a hundred percent dialed in that this buck is betting, you know, in this five acre little patch here, I'm not going to move in on him and be aggressive on purpose. I'm, it might happen on accident if he's using a different spot, and I don't realize that. But I'm not going to try and go in there and blow him out or, or do anything crazy in that first couple weeks. I got gotcha. you. Okay, that so that makes sense. Um. If you're, I'm trying to think where I want to go with this. You're talking about the acorns. And I mean, we, in my area too, we have tons of acorns on the ground right now. And it's just been a great acorn crop this year. So you're trying to find the secluded acorn, you know, where it's like just secluded. Like there might be one acorn tree in the middle of, you know, whatever, a cedar swamp or, you know, a marsh or something. You're trying to find that. Is that like something that you're looking for every year as far as like maybe you don't have intel on it, but maybe you do one last little tour or scouting mission where it's like, are you looking for that knowing, you know, the acorn crop's been good and you might just throw a sit at that as well? Yeah. The thing that I find the most success with is how closely my food is to a really significant or multiple significant changes in topography. So this particular 40 acres, not only do you have a bunch of elevation changes and ridges and bowls, but then you got a bunch of edge work from agriculture on the field edges. And then you, like I said, you got that hemlock swamp and then that goes into this Oak Ridge. So as many, I mean, in, in that 40 acre chunk, there's probably five to six transition zones of like topography. So, as many of those types of areas that I can find, they usually are going to yield in my past experiences some of the better deer movement. Um, doesn't have to necessarily be on food like that. I was just um, bird hunting a few days ago on a a massive chunk of public land by my house that quite honestly intimidates me because I just don't even know where to start. It's right along the White <laughs> yeah. River and it's just, it's crazy. But I did find a spot where it's going to be my backup plan despite not having a camera in there based off of seeing tons of fresh rubs but it's it's quite a ways off um anywhere where you could park and walk into but they had done some cutting must have been last year there's probably an 80 acre swath that kind of snakes through in like a not like a horseshoe but almost like a, if you're making the arc on the horseshoe and then bend it back up the other way almost like an elongated s yep and it's all popple slashings right now probably four or five feet tall all along that edge work i mean i'm assuming that there's deer bedding in those popple slashings but all along that edge work is just constant trails in and out and all along the edge are oaks which is going to be huge so i found a couple spots that were pretty heavily used and then i found some lesser used trails um and it's really really easy there's a couple trees i picked out that i can get up and lay eyes you know with a with some glasses and see entrance in and out in and out to see you know not necessarily i'm going to set up on the x that first sit but i should have a good idea where i want to set up the next time as long as i got a good prevailing wind as well too so yeah and you know in my experience if you can find some oaks that are dropping good acorns on that edge like that hard definitive edge whether it might Mm -hmm. be from swamp to hardwoods or you know whatever that edge is but if you can find some oaks like right on the edge where the deer feel safe, where they can come out just out of their bed, come in there and eat, you know, get on those acorns. It kind of acts as like a staging area. And and sometimes 
in some scenarios where I've been in, but like that's to me that's like something I'm looking for. If you can find that, that's huge. Um, now it can be tricky though because sometimes to get right on that food, their beds aren't far from it. You know, so right. that can be really tricky and how to do it. But if you can slip in there, man, those scenarios are deadly in my experience. Yeah, and, and that's why I got really excited about it because aside from that that forty acre chunk, the other the other areas that I you know the one that I call my honey hole, that one is is primarily a marsh hunting scenario, and I'm 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 hunting or I'm I'm you know in my stand quite a little ways away from food, so I'm not hunting any deer that's directly over food besides any you know type of scrub browse that they might graze on coming to and from and that's more you know right up on bedding you know hunting to and from that type of scenario so i was excited to find another pretty hot um food situation you know and having it not be too far from what i would suspect you know quite a an opportunistic deer bedding area as well okay so I got another question for you. I know you're a mobile hunter, so you like to get after it and, and keep bouncing around and everything, but you will do set stands. So, or, you know, pre-hungs, you will set those and you do on private, you'll do some pre-hungs, correct? Yes. Okay. So my question to you is in October, is it best to be as mobile as you can, in your opinion? Or and what I mean by that is like, even if you're being mobile, like you're not going back to the same tree and rehanging that stand. Like you're bouncing around. Now, is it is it more beneficial to bounce around or, you know, maybe stick to an area and, and kind of and ride the hole on that? If you if you've got good sign, I know it's very situational dependent. But like, what's your opinion on that? I have a couple spots that are, like like the one I call the killing tree. Like that tree will produce. It's just a matter of like if it's going to be that day or not. Obviously, you can't sit there and hunt that stand every single day because then you're going to give yourself up. But there are certain trees that I have no problem. Like I'll be a little bit more like I'll hunt it at night and leave my stand out there and hunt it the next day as long as the wind's going to be solid with it. But primarily on, on public land, I will never leave a stand out. Not because I'm necessarily fearful of it being stolen, but more just from an observation standpoint. Like if I you know a lot can happen like i got two kids now what happens in the middle of the night like if i can't go out the next morning and then somebody's going to see this and be like hey i wonder why this guy's sitting here type right. of thing if they're yep. out wandering around or bird hunting so that's a little bit more on my radar now so i i really try to keep myself and leave less of a footprint on a lot of my spots that aren't necessarily super difficult to reach i'll have a few different accesses to get into those stands as well so I'm not, if I am hunting one consistently, say we got a prevailing like northwest wind and I'm going to hunt this particular spot for the next three sits or four sits, I'm going to probably walk in and out a different way on each, that, each day I go in and out of that stand just to not leave the footprint on the ground that makes it obvious. Because, I mean, anybody could walk up and be like, hmm, that doesn't look like a deer runway and be like, Oh, what the heck's going on over here? And then all of a sudden they go in there, not that they find my stand and that'd be the end of it, but how much scent are they going to leave in there that I just worked my tail off all season long to keep sacred. And then they're just going to go blow it up, you know? Yep. So you're, you're going, you know, out of your way to make sure nobody's tracking you as well though. Yeah. I go in way earlier than I think I should and if I'm having good encounters with deer, I'm staying way later than I think I should. I think the night before I shot my biggest 
um, public land deer. I had two three and a halfs that were out in this marsh, this little pocket sparring. Couldn't get a shot at either one of them, but they didn't just bolt off and leave. It got dark and I could still hear them. I think I stayed in the stand probably an hour and a half after dark. My wife was texting me, oh my gosh, are you okay? Did you fall out of your tree stand? I said, yep, I'm good. And snuck out of there that night, left my climber there, went back in really early the next day, and that's when I killed that big one. Yep, <laughs> I remember that. We talked so, about that that buck on one of the past podcasts. Yeah, and so I think it's it's like that, a roundabout way to answer your question. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to stay as as mobile as I can, not necessarily bouncing around pocket to pocket, but I'm not setting up a home base really anywhere except on private land that I know I can leave those stands out there. Those stands are there for three, four months out of the season. The deer don't think twice about them really. Okay. Um, except to acknowledge that they're there, but on public land, I just try and leave left not only for um, the deer, but scent wise, but for just other hunters as well. Okay. So next question, a little scenario here. Are you throwing, like in October, are you throwing sets like, a, I guess you'd call it like a guess and check sit somewhere where you've never scouted, somewhere that lo- just looks good on the map, you know, e-scouting or something? Will you go in and throw a set at that and, you know, maybe to open up, you know, another clue to something or is it just one of those things where it's like, man... I really need to scout it first. Like, will you throw one of those sets at that? I will. And actually, I'm going to do one this year. Um, we don't typically get a lot of east winds, you know, in the fall. I mean, there are some. And then a lot of people are like, well, I'm screwed because most people hang for prevailing winds. And I found a spot. It's actually on the opposite side of the marsh as one as my little honey hole spot in my killing tree. And actually, if I would have found this spot, and been able to be in that stand that morning I killed that big one, I would have had him killed and I wouldn't have had to call him back into the marsh. So I found, basically I found a tree on the other side of this travel corridor. There's pinch pocket between this marsh and tag or thicket. And I have a great view of stuff that I would not see from my opposite tree. Now I didn't really scout it. I literally was walking out from hanging a camera and I was like, I just need to go walk up and take a look at this. It's kind of a pain to get into I needed to go see it and found a perfect tree and I don't have to really do any lane trimming or anything like that. It's, it's pretty self-sufficient. It's got good back cover. So that will be one that I'll just go in and sit at blind this year on that first, probably due South or a Southeast or an East wind or not, sorry, not South North. Um, but that'll be one of those scenarios. And then, um, you know, when I was out, like I said, I found that spot that was, by all the popple slashings, I didn't really scout that too, too much because I was bird hunting, um, looking for grouse with my dogs. So that'll be another one of those scenarios that'll be more like a Hail Mary. Like, I know there's deer around, but I haven't really taken the time to be too tactful about it yet. And that's where I'll start a little bit more conservative on those, staying away from what I would suspect to be something that I could just go blow up if I went a little too aggressive too quick, and then use it as kind of an observation stand, and then depending on what I'm seeing or any trends I'm seeing kind of tweak that, you know, for future sits. Okay. That makes sense. Now, when you're, when you're scouting and you, and you find this tree, you're talking about, you know, you found this tree and you're like, I don't have to, you know, really don't have to cut any lanes or anything like that. This is something I've been, you know, getting into more this year. Cause I'm going to do a lot of mobile hunting this year. Um, 
and it's when I'm scouting for trees. I, I you know I've only hung a couple tree stands this year just for more particularly morning sets. You know just because I you know I sometimes it's like God you don't want to get out of bed and then you're like oh well I just don't really want to hang a stand so it's just like you're finding all these excuses. You know what I mean? Yep. So you, I feel like I want a couple of the, the morning spots where I can just climb in quiet, quick, and get in. Now. If you find these trees you're talking about, I find myself, you know, marking them on the map, obviously, like on my app or, you know, wherever I'm doing. But then I'm writing notes in, like, you know, this is something I learned from Byron Horton of the Whitetail Experience is, like, you know, get in and, and write some notes on that as far as, like, you only can get about 12 foot in this tree, you know, and you got to cut, you know, this is on private. I'm not talking public. You know, you yeah. got to cut, you know, two 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 limbs down and and you should be good you should have like 360 degree shot angles and or you know all the way around the tree or whatever it is do you find yourself doing that like having to is it just a mental note or is it something you physically have to like write down on the app at like you know because i'll forget i forget i don't even remember if i went to the bathroom this morning to be honest with you so (laughs) i forget everything so i gotta i gotta you know be a little more uh, you know particular about it the biggest mental note that I'll typically make is when I'm climbing, whether that was with my climber or with my hanging bank set, is the height that I want to be at. Because, you know, if I have 25 feet to be able to get up this tree, it doesn't always mean that the best hunting is going to be at 25 feet. I found that out the hard way and climb all the way up there and get set and you're like, oh, this is going to be sweet. And then it gets light and you're like, oh, I just reduced my shooting, you know, visibilities by... 30%. So I think that's my big mental note thing that I would, you know, write on, you know, my marker on Onyx or, you know, whatever I'm using is optimal height for this set is going to be facing this direction and it's going to be at this particular height, especially if you're doing it in the dark um, and you can't really have too much visibility beyond what your green light or your red light is going to show. Okay. Um, but no, I think it's it. I started doing that a little bit too, just out of like, pissing myself off when i went out there and had to make a bunch of noise you know trying to resituate and get down a little lower get up a little bit higher once it starts to get gray out and you realize that well there's no point in sitting here if i'm going to just sit here i might as well not have brought my bow right if i'm gonna you know watch these deer walk right by and not be able to do anything yeah and and those notes are more you know for morning sits when you got to get into the dark and you know and and everything's just different because you know i've heard horror stories of guys being like they hang and hunt in the morning and it's the first time in the tree and they get up there and they're like, fuck, I don't have any shooting lights. Like, what am I going to do now? Now it's like, you know, daylight out and you don't want to move. And it's like, shit. Yep. So there's, there's already too many variables that can go wrong with deer hunting. You don't need to add the, the stuff that you could easily take care of and make sure you got a clear shot to the mix. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I got a scenario for you now and, so it might be detailed, but I, I got something I, I want to pick your brain about and, and figure out how you do this. So, okay, we're going to talk about private land. You're hunting, you're hunting a piece of private land. Okay, it's got a big hay field. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it a, a 65 to 70 acre hay field, and you know that is like the hub that you you see deer in it all the time. You know you shine deer in it, and there's deer in there in the night all the time. Okay, so you are scouting and you find on the edge of this hay field there's a buffer strip of about 10 rows of pretty mature pine trees um but they're you know they're covered all the way to the ground um 
there's about 10 rows and then it and then it transitions there's a hard edge it transitions into hardwoods and it's rolling hardwood uh ridges so and i'm gonna i'm gonna say it's probably about five acres of rolling hardwood ridges on the other side of that there's another buffer of 30 rows of pine trees okay and then it hits the neighbors which the neighbors hold the thick bedding okay Okay. it's just thicker than the hair on a dog's back you know they you know they bed in there right so you're scouting and you come up and you find four scrapes okay and and this is in september you're doing like a speed scout like you're just trying to do your last little due due diligence to figure things out you find four scrapes they're little scrapes you know just looks like could be turkey scratching maybe but you know they're scrapes you know that's really nothing real big and it's on that hard edge okay the first so hard on, edge closest the first to the hard field. Ed, is yep. it on is it okay so it's on the field edge of those pines yep yep so then you keep working you're like okay there's sign here but you you keep you keep moving you go about 50 more yards down the hard edge okay so you're not like on the field edge but you're where the hardwoods meets the pines okay and yeah. you find there's a little there's a little like little shelf that goes from in between there's a valley that comes out of the oaks and it's a little shelf up into the pines okay and it is like a sandbox it is just looks like every deer in the county has ran through this i mean tracks all <laughs> over it and then you go about in you go into the pines a little bit and halfway through the 10 rows of pines there is a giant scrape Okay, huge scrape. And this is at the interior of that second buffer of pines between bedding and between hardwoods? Nope. If I'm following you? Nope. Or is this this the first transition? This is the first transition. So these deer, it seems like you're thinking these deer are probably going from the neighbor's bedding to your field. Okay? Okay. So you just know that all this sign you just found right here, like, is like, okay, this is the hub. It's the epicenter. How are you treating this? Now, are you, are you hanging a stand right on this, or are you thinking, you know, are you too far away from the bedding? Do I need to get closer to the bedding? You're talking that one particular mega scrape, right? Yep, the mega scrape. That's close. That's that's literally 15 yard, 15 to 20 yards off of the big field edge. Okay, in the in the pine thicket. Yep, in the pines. So, two thoughts have crossed my mind. One is it a community scrape, or one is it a single a single deer that's primarily using that scrape. So I think that would be one thing that I would want to try to figure out either by a sit or by a camera at some point in time. Okay. Um, now in this, I'm just going to ask a couple follow-up questions just to make sure. So you got the 60 acre field, you got 10 rows of pines, five acres of rolling oaks, another, let's say 10 rows of pines, and then you got thick bedding. Yep. Which is on the neighbor's. So we're assuming that this is kind of all directly in line with each other, like, you know, 40 acre chunks, let's just call them. And they're all in like a long line. Yeah. They kind of offset. They kind of staggered. How does that present? So, itself? so when, so I, I should, I should throw something else in here. When it goes from the neighbor's bedding to the first uh, buffer of pines. So you're at the neighbor's thick bedding. There mm-hmm. is a CRP field. That's only 60 yards wide. So it goes neighbor's bedding, CRP field, 60 yards wide, and then the first buffer of pines, then oak ridges, and then pines again, and then field, if that gotcha. makes sense. Gotcha. What 
so you're talking an October hunt? Yep, October. Okay. So October hunt, I'm going to say that my strategy initially going in, besides what I talked about, I wanting to get some intel about that big scrape. Um, obviously, we know that, you know, typically your bigger bucks are going to make bigger scrapes. But if you do find like a community rub or a community scrape, it can make it seem like it's a, maybe a bigger deer that's making that. Um, besides the intel on that, my my first initial thought is going to be hanging tight to that second buffer that goes between the pine and the CRP. Because on the off chance that you got a, a deer that is bedding, if you're pretty confident that they're there, and at some point they end up in the hayfield, I don't want that some point to be after shooting time. Yep. I want to give myself that most optimal amount of time to lay eyes to see what's going on. Also knowing that if deer are destined to go out feed through those oaks get out to that hub out in the hayfield to eat where you see them at night you know they get there i'm probably going to have to put in less stand time to sit after dark before i can get out of there without blowing any deer out than i would if i'm right on the edge of that field i would have a higher percentage chance i feel of spooking deer out i probably wouldn't hang right on that scrape just because i saw it on the very first sit or scenario without knowing a little bit more how the deer move through that do they skirt the edge do they go through the middle you know what's what's it playing out so i would probably try and use like at least one morning and one evening kind of observation sits and if i happen to get lucky then that's awesome too but i would stay i would stay a little bit more conservative especially with it being um october scenario but i would definitely hang closer to closer to bedding but still safe enough like that you're far away but definitely closer to bedding to give yourself an optimal amount of time that you're going to be able to lay eyes on you know hopefully a shooter buck but just deer in general as they get up and as they make their way through the food and then out to the destination part gotcha okay so that this scenario is something that i'm living right now <laughs> on That's a piece of private so when i found this scrape and the other thing I didn't tell you is there's a huge scrape and then there's three other scrapes like a lot, like next to it that aren't quite as big, but they're big scrapes. I mean, it, it, it is like, okay, this is, there's something's going on here. So I had a camera with me. I hung a camera. Okay. Hung a camera right there, right on that shelf where it kind of comes right up to the scrape. I pulled it for the first time today. Okay. I've got seven bucks on it. I've got a lot of does. There's probably six or seven bucks. Two or three of them are probably good shooters. One okay. is a for sure, like for sure, no doubt. I'd probably kill him out of state kind of thing. Oh, um, that's a good deer. Yeah. And the only thing is all the bucks are midnight and after. Mm-hmm. So what tells me, and so earlier in the spring, I was scouting this area and I didn't see this sign. Like I, I walked through this, but this sign wasn't there, but just right. from the topography, I was like, I want to get a stand in here. So I hung a, we hung a stand in there just so happens like this sign is exactly where we wanted to hang the stand. So the stand is on the scrape. Okay. Um, but then after pulling the card, so I'm like, okay, maybe we jump the gun a little bit on it. Not saying it's not a good spot, but maybe we jump right. the gun on it and maybe we need to push back like you said, you know, and get closer to that bedding. The only thing is the clo- the only closer you can get is about 80 more yards. 
okay. towards the bedding. And you can if get, you're hanging in a tree, right? Yeah. Well, we can get right on the bedding. The only thing is, everything will see you walking into the stand. Oh yeah. So it goes bedding, CRP, pine trees, hardwood, oaks. And then on the other side of the hardwood oaks is where all this sign is. You can get on that transition from the pines and the hardwood oaks, but it's only about 80 more yards from the scrape, if that makes sense, towards the bedding. So Okay, so so you're saying that that, that hardwood ridge, that five acres, this particular piece is only about 80 yards wide, this particular section? Yeah, it, I mean, it might be 100 at the most, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say about 80 yards, yeah. But and those pine trees don't create a good enough buffer between the pines and the CRP. No. And the bedding. No. Nope. Yeah. See. So then, yeah, that's a that might be a scenario if if you can't make a a reasonably stealthy approach and get tight on those pines, or as tight as you can get to where you feel it's going to be effective, because there's no point in sitting 80 yards in the middle of the oak flat if you're still going to be battling with the same scenario that you were on the scrape. Right. That would probably be a scenario where I would honestly let it let it sit and simmer that's what i've been and start thinking. to see if and start to see if things change a little bit as far as like the bucks it, what it, what i would say is just my opinion so don't take it to the bank but if if all those bucks primarily especially those shooters are are coming out there at night and we know that nobody's out there buggering those deer or anything like that i would say that you know maybe those those mature deer are not necessarily at this moment in time using that bedding as their primary bedding and then when they are using that scrape they're using it as one of their fingers or one of their tertiary you know areas that they would create in their home range um i don't know if you've if you've seen any of those studies where they do put those tracker collars on them and you see they kind of outline and shade in like acreage of the home base versus like the summer pattern, the fall pattern, the late season and all how those areas overlap and how those different, it almost looks like a, a hand, like yep. a human hand. If you laid it down on a map, you know, my first thought would be maybe, maybe those bucks are using that as like a tip of one of those fingers and they all have kind of their home pocket ranges. Like if we were still using the analogy of the human hand, they're living in the palm primarily but then they're venturing out to see who's in the area, see what does are in the area, where their pecking order is kind of establishing on those different scenarios for those deer. And then as the season progresses and those those first does start to come into heat and you know testosterone levels increases, you're probably going to see a more regular appearance of those mature deer would be my guess. And eventually they're just going to have to start doing some daytime stuff if they want to be a regular to that scrape if they feel that there's a need to get in there and breed those does. And that's that's kind of what I was thinking too. It's I feel like it's part of so the big deer, you know, the for sure deer that's in there. On the other side of the field, we have them all in daylight on camera. So and, on the other side of the field? Yes. So oh. he is showing up on the hub scrape that I just explained after dark which tells me that obviously daylight over on the other side, he's bedding over there. That's where he's yep. living. And this is his, maybe his loop, part of his loop. That's where he's going yep. to figure out, like, I'm going to check things out over here. This is my loop. But he ends up showing up on the other side in daylight in the mornings. Right. And that would, yeah, that would, that would make a lot of sense, at least for, you know, present time where you're at 
middle to middle to late September. Yep. Yeah, and I, I got a feeling it's going to shift. He's finally out of. This is the first hard hornet or pictures we've got of him. Um, mm-hmm. All the all, all the other daylight pictures that we got of him were up until I want to say last week or the week before, and they were all uh, velvet. But there are majority of them are in the daylight in the morning. Um, yeah, I just had my first hard horn deer show up on my cellular cameras last night that I'm running out just outside my house, and I had three bucks that i haven't seen all summer just show up out of the blue so, so yep. there's definitely a big a big switch going on i would say the next week and a half is probably going to be even more yeah the shift the shift is happening i had i think it was two it was two podcasts ago that i put out i believe it was i had a buck come in you know on the the on my one acre farm it's just been tough sledding this summer haven't had had one possible shooter kind of a game time decision kind of deer on it all summer haven't had anything like for sure yep yep there we go you know but right around i can't remember the date like first week of september i had a 10 a 10 point show up a good for sure shooter um first time never seen him before in my life hard horned and i'm like okay so that transition already happened from him he came in from somewhere and it seems like he's staying put right now but you know i haven't checked him again since then so we'll see i don't know but i'm glad that new ones are moving in Right, and that's always – I get excited like all year long when, you know, deer are using food plots or when you find this sign, when you find that sign. You know, at the end of the day, you know, maybe you can argue that 50% of it will be the same as what it was before going through. Like the one thing you can always count on is habitat, and if you know your habitat holds deer, then you really shouldn't have anything to worry about. It's just going to be the type of deer that are going to be there. I mean, you hear about those horror stories that these guys are watching these giant – velvet monster bucks all summer long on their farm or on their piece or whatever and then middle of september hits and poof they're gone and never see them again they're like all right maybe they hit by a car well they just that might be where they live in the summer but man this is where they want to be in the fall and it's closer to their you know wintering grounds than it is their summering grounds type of thing so right you, you really can't put too much stock into what you're going to do i feel like until unless you have like a giant farm where you're hunting 400 or 500 acres where Obviously, things aren't going to change too drastically, but... Yep, and you can somewhat for, control it, you know? Yeah, but yeah. most stuff shakes up within the last the middle of the month and basically until it starts, and you really can't do too much about that. You just got to kind of act and the punches, you know? Yep, for sure. Well, cool, man. I think that's kind of what I had listed out here, and... I know you and I've been struggling to to get together on this podcast because dad life has got both of us down right now. <laughs> so it's a game changer. I'm I'm already like thinking about like, well, I'm definitely not going to have the volume of sits this fall that I usually do. So I really need to make sure that they count, and that's why, you know, my main goal is in the first week of season. If I don't have anything promising going on from you know trying to take a buck standpoint, I'm going to try and fill a couple doe tags and at least get my meat situation a little bit more comfortable and then, you know, save, save my opportunities for, for November. If I can't figure out where I need to set up on a deer in October to try and kill him off his bed. Yeah, I agree with that. Like you and I kind of talked about that this morning on just talking on the phone that my one acre farm, I've got a, a food plot that I put in, had it last year and I had bucks on it all year last year. I've only had one buck on it this whole summer, even till now. I got a cell cam in there, have not been in there. I've got does, seven does show up 
every night between 7 and 7.30, and I'm like, well, I know where I'm going to be early. Is I, I almost feel like these does have moved in so much, and they've got three fawns with them. I almost feel like they moved in so much that they kicked the bucks out. And yeah, it's so funny I'm you like say that. I need to take some out. <laughs> I literally just read that the other day about depending on depending on the size of your property or whatnot and how much food is available and all this other stuff that yeah, your your amount of mature does is like you know, you think like, Oh, if I have the if I have the does around, even if your ratios aren't too bad, they're gonna they're gonna pull rank and they're gonna keep those bucks from wanting to live at that particular spot instead of just like transition or or make appearances there. So nothing, you know, hearing you say that and see that, and then I'm seeing the exact same situation going on at at my house currently right now. I had a whole herd move in last night. I'd never even seen them all summer. I watched the same goes and phones all summer long and still am. And then all of a sudden last night I had one picture. I had eight mature does all in the same photo. And I was like, where the heck have you guys been? And what the heck is going on? And it's just, you know, you, never makes sense you know every single day something yep. changes and you got to try and call an audible and figure out what's going on but that instilled to me that there's going to be a little more dough management going around around the house probably in two weeks and yeah you know maybe i was planning on the other way yep and it makes it easier not having a shooter you know that you've yeah. glassed or you know head on camera or physically seen you know i haven't seen a shooter yet on that farm so on that side of the farm so i'm like it might be time to you know fill the freezer early <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm already planning on, I, i'm today and tomorrow this afternoon i'm gonna be out just walking um on my 10 because i really have never hunted mobily from my my house and my 10 acres i've usually just used my stationary stands because they're they're in good spots and there's really no need to change but with the acorns the way they are i'm gonna set up in the flats a long ways away from any food source that I have any permanent thing up knowing that they're going to congregate there from anywhere from 630 on and my hope is just to catch one of them in transition and kill her and not make any noise and not make a big scene between you know my food you know my food plots or anything like that where if there are those bucks that are staging out 50 60 yards and they just don't pop in there till dark or whatever right now um try and play it as safe as possible you know I definitely agree with that man that'll be cool so, well, cool, man. I appreciate you doing this, like always. Uh, thank you for coming on for the third time. <laughs> hey, no problem, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Um, it's always it's always fun to talk scenarios and, you know, also go through some of those things where, well, this is how my thought process works. So it's nice to hear, like, oh, yeah, well, that's what I was thinking, too, because I'm, I'm just intrigued by the guy who says, well, that's 180 degrees differently about what I was thinking about, because yep. then I want to know, well, why and what's your reasoning and, you know, Maybe I haven't experienced what he has, and maybe that's, you know, a, a big missing tool from, you know, my tool belt type of scenario. So yeah. I'll uh, I'll keep you posted, though, what, what goes on or what I'm seeing over the next couple of weeks. And like I said, I'm going to try and get one last card pull on every single public land camera tomorrow if I can. And if there's uh, anything that's real promising, I'll shoot you a photo of it so you at least can put some context with it. Heck yeah, man. I appreciate that. Like I said, thank you again, man, and uh, go uh, go have fun with your kids on this beautiful Saturday afternoon. <laughs> oh, definitely will, man. You too, Aaron. Take care. Thank you. All right, there you have it, and just a perfect episode. Matt, thank you again for coming on. I appreciate it. 
and quick everybody please go to itunes leave a five-star rating leave a review let us know how we're doing or how shitty we're doing i just want to hear it all so thank you guys for listening don't forget next week we'll be right here on the fall podcast thank you guys